So uh, we thought we would begin as we did last week with an opening chant, and we thought we'd just stick with the same one. It was so lovely last week, that line from Psalm 46, Be still and know that I am God, and just dropping a word or phrase until we arrive at just be. Um, so we'll do that three times together on a monotone. Hey, if someone hears a harmony in there, go with it. But um, uh, And then we'll just have a little silent pause, and then Jonathan will... Uh, introduce us to the material for the day. Uh, so first, just let's begin by taking a few deep breaths together. Letting our awareness uh, shift as we're able, drop from our mental center into our heart space. Join in the chant as you are comfortable. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be Resting for a few more breaths in that pure being, beyond theology, beyond thought, just being. Thank you. 
Okay, so now we'll remember to silence our phones. <laughs> Anybody, if you have to, just put on silent. Thank you. So let's begin by remembering the quality of humility, which is to say, none of us knows. We're, we're searching, right? So seeking together is a beautiful thing. And uh, uh, we wish we knew often, but understanding ultimate questions, eh. <laughs> everything's a draft policy. <laughs> pending further information and experience. So with that in mind, we can be together and think together and explore together. I actually uh, 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 wanted, maybe I'll do this one day, now that I know how to do this online, a bumper sticker that says, we have the questions, not the answers. Come seek with us. So with that in mind, I... Uh, I mentioned this book, and next week uh, we will assemble a little sheet of possible good reading for you, rather than have you all scribble it all down today. But when Matthew and I started discussing this class, he said, read this. It's called Jesus, A New Vision by Marcus J. Borg, who passed away just a few years ago, I read. Um, and I gobbled it up, because he... In, he does, he does a very plausible interpretation from, from my modern mind of Jesus as um, the, the historical Jesus, of Jesus as a, as a person living in the beginning of the first century in Judea. Uh, and he does it not as an apologetic for Christianity. In other words, he's not trying to show why Jesus improved on Judaism, but he does it of Jesus as a spiritual, um, radical teacher in the context of Judaism, so that it's a really important reworking because I don't have to get defensive reading this book. Does that make sense, everybody? Uh, and so I really enjoyed it, and it was very illuminating for me because you remember, until very recently, the last few decades, um, the Jewish Christian discourse would be about proving who was right. Uh, and um, that's not what we want to do here. We want to just understand as more deeply as, as deeply as we can, more and more, uh, the context of the historical Jesus and the books that were written about him in the context of Judaism of that era, because these were Jewish people writing Jewish books during a time of great change and upheaval. Uh, so, one of the things that uh, Marcus Borg does is, in his introduction, um, is, uh, excuse me, I had the right page before. <coughs> ah, yes. Um, uh, is he wants to contextualize for the modern person the what we, what we, because our context is so different usually from the context of an earlier time, 
where we, as products of the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment, we do not accept as a given what was accepted in the time of ancient Judea and Jesus, which is that coexisting, surrounding and infusing our material world is a world of spirit. That's real. It's real. Jesus, Jesus and the early, other early rabbis are not uh, just ethical teachers. They are spiritual teachers. Now, for us, again, that which we cannot prove, that which is not empirically uh, um, uh, satisfactorily uh, uh, shown to be so, is given less privilege of reality than uh, that which is felt, that which is known or experienced but can't be measured. Like, that's our world, right? That's what it means. That's what it means to live in this world today. Um, and uh, so therefore, when we retroject our <coughs> worldview back onto an ancient worldview, which is not so ancient, it exists all over the world today too, but this was but a given, then uh, we really limit ourselves. So we have to suspend disbelief in order to understand. Um, that doesn't mean we have to affirm or in any way make articles of faith. We have to suspend disbelief and, uh, and understand a different way of experiencing life that is both the known physical existence that we have and a world of spirit that both creates it, infuses it, and surrounds it that we call by many metaphors. We're going to be talking about the kingdom of God today. What is that? What does that mean? What does that metaphor mean? So let me read a little about uh, uh, what Bork says, just again to frame this. Uh, um, the notion of a world of spirit is a vague and difficult notion in the contemporary world. And uh, I just paraphrase this. By it, I mean another dimension or layer or level of reality in addition to the visible world of our ordinary experience. This notion of another world, understood as actual, even though non-material, is quite alien to the modern way of thinking. The modern worldview or picture of reality sees reality as having essentially one dimension, the visible and material realm, deeply ingrained in all of us who have grown up in modern Western culture, this worldview makes us skeptical about another reality. For most contemporary people, therefore, believing in another reality requires faith understood as affirming that which on other grounds is doubtful. The world of spirit is not part of our taken-for-granted understanding of reality, not part of our worldview. But the notion of another reality, a world of spirit, was the common property of virtually every culture before ours, constituting what has been called the, quote, primordial tradition. Appearing in a multiplicity of cultural forms, indeed in virtually as many forms as there are cultures, it was almost a cultural universal, the, unanimity, the human unanimity prior to the modern period. Essential to it are two claims. First, in addition to the visible material world disclosed to us by ordinary sense perception and modern science, there is another level of reality, a second world of non-material reality charged with energy and power. 
This basic division of reality into two levels can be spoken of in many ways, as the sacred and the profane, the holy and the mundane, God and this world, and so forth. But what is most important is the notion of another level or levels of reality rather than any particular set of terms. Moreover, the other world, the world of spirit, is seen as more real than this world. Indeed, the other reality is the source or ground of this world. In the beginning, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. That, pre, that, that is the source of our world. Um, that then that Spirit utters the world into existence. Uh, second, and very, more, and very importantly, the other world is not an article of belief simply, but an element of experience. That is, the notion of another reality does not have its origin in pre-scientific speculation about the origin of things, or in primal anxiety about death, or about the need for protection, but is grounded in the religious experience of humankind. It is not merely believed in, but known. Okay, so when I was in college and reading um, uh, contemporary theology about the re and 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 uh, 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 studies about uh, what was the book um, by Norman Brown. Um, death. Uh, uh, now it's like buried in my adolescence, but um, it's not the denial of death. The denial of death. Psychoanalytic explanations for why humans created religion, right? That's what I was raised on. But then, as an adult, that's not my experience of the world. My experience of the world is that we are infused and surrounded and just completely. Uh, uh, astonished by a mystery. And so that's my, that's the real, so instead of trying to understand it, the goal is to experience it. As moderns, we are, we are discouraged from experiencing it because it doesn't fit into our known map of, the re of reality. And in order to understand spiritual texts, we have to somehow get past that. Uh, that doesn't mean we have to agree, we don't have to, it's not an article of faith, it's an experience. Therefore, when I started reading the Torah that way, the Bible, it's a book of visions and dreams. When you think about the Bible, Abraham hears voices, right? Jacob dreams of ladders going up to heaven. Uh, these, these, these characters, their whole life on this world is directed by some other realm of instruction. It's a visionary text, as is, as is the New Testament. Um, and so I just wanted to frame our discussion uh, by remembering that our spiritual traditions are hard for us to, we wish they fit in a manual, <laughs> But they are actually pointing us into a relationship with the infinite unknown uh, and assuming that that, that infinite unknown is a real part of the universe. Right? Now, for some of us, that's a felt reality. For other of us, that's a concept. But I just wanted to share that, that we can't talk about these guys as just philosophers or as theoreticians, or as theologians, 
or as moral teachers. Their point, they're trying, they, they, the goal of our sacred text is to put us in contact with the reality that for, uh, that, uh, that for uh, people who uh, uh, can embrace this worldview both surrounds and infuses everything about our physical realm. Um, so having said that, um, I'll say it again as many ways as I can. <laughs> so this is a crucial starting point that Jesus, as Jonathan is saying, that he was, he was a mystic. He was a spirit person. He was engaged with this other reality, this deeper, more real reality. That was what was guiding and directing his life and his work as is the case for Isaiah and Hosea and Malachi and all of the great figures of uh, our traditions. They're spirit people. And uh, what I want to do today, what we want to do, we want to start looking at one of Jesus' primary metaphors um, for that spiritual reality and for that spiritual reality when it infuses and breaks through into this reality, um, which is the kingdom of God. Uh, but before we dive into that, I want to just do a little quick review um, synopsis of last week. Last week we uh, we talked about the idea that that we can distinguish in a way between two Jesuses, so to speak. Um, one, what we might call the Jesus of history, the historical person, and then what we might call the um, the theological Jesus. Uh, sometimes historians made have made the distinction between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. Um, Marcus Borg says he actually finds it more helpful to talk about the pre-Easter Jesus, who was a person in a human body who walked around, and then the post-Easter Jesus. So after Jesus' death, the way he was experienced as, as one with spirit, as one with that eternal dimension, and continued to um, be a power in the lives of uh, the people in the early Jesus movement. And what he says is that often that post-Easter Jesus, who is experienced as one with God, gets then projected, retrojected back into the pre-Easter Jesus. Um, and so he, he sort of makes this distinction between um, the human Jesus and the way he continues to be experienced in the movement later. Um, this is helpful because for most of us in the Christian tradition, for 2,000 years, when we would read the Gospels, the historical Jesus and the theological Jesus were just one and the same. And there was no separation at all. And we sort of believed that the Gospels were first century eyewitness accounts. This, these were eyewitness reports um, written by the disciples who walked and moved and ate with Jesus. And, um, and so there could be no separation because they're just reporting exactly what he said and exactly what they saw. All of that shifted within the past hundred years with the emergence of higher biblical criticism. And we started looking at these um, documents contextually, looking at them um, as literary constructions, looking at the layers and development of the text. And what we've discovered and what mainline Christian scholarship says now is that none of these are eyewitness accounts. None of these were written in the years immediately following um, the life of Jesus. These are all written at least 40 to 70 years after the fact um, by people in the later generations of the tradition, not eyewitnesses. And so the way they came to be 
uh, was that initially, the people in this movement, they were sharing it through oral tradition. They were just telling the story of their rabbi, telling the story of his acts and his teachings. And little by little they said, we need to start gathering the teachings. And so the oral tradition began um, becoming collected into what scholars posited as sayings gospels. So they were just going to write down a list of Jesus' teachings. And um, little by little they said, well, you know, the, the people who first who were actually there with him, they're dying off now. We need to get the story set down in writing. And so then they started writing narrative gospels that told the story. And so we looked um, over there on the wall, you see the death of Jesus around the year 30, and then the letters of Paul around the year 50. And during that time, we get two early sayings gospels. Um, and these are our earliest gospels. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit as we look at the sayings about the kingdom. One of these gospels scholars call quella, or Q, which means source. And this was a hypothetical gospel, and it exists today embedded in the gospels of Matthew and Luke. Um, and so, as we said last week, if you take Matthew and Luke, you see that they were working off of Mark, written around the year 70. And if you pull the Mark and material out, there's still a lot of overlapping material in those Gospels. Scholars said they were working with a sayings collection. So that's Q. So Q now exists embedded in those two Gospels. Um, so the idea that sayings collections existed was hypothetical until the 1940s when at Nag Hammadi in northern Egypt, an, a, a cache of early Christian manuscripts was discovered. Uh, a farmer, he was out digging for fertilizer, and he hit into um, a large clay pot that had been buried for 1,600 years and smashed it open and out tumbled this cache of early Christian manuscripts, codexes. Um, in that collection, we found a text called the Gospel of Thomas. And what that was, it was an early sayings gospel, just a collection of sayings. Jesus said, Jesus said, 114 sayings attributed to Jesus. And so scholars said, oh, aha, um, is this Q? Is this the sayings gospel that we had dreamed existed? And as they examined it, they realized, no, this is another sayings collection. But what it did, it confirmed the theory that in the early tradition, sayings collections were being circulated. So, so now we have the sayings collection Thomas and the sayings collection Q, which we reconstruct by pulling all of the overlapping material out of Matthew and Luke that is not Mark. Um, and so... What we can do then, we have three independent streams that attest to the early Jesus tradition. Um, one is Mark, this gospel from the set around 70 that has material that is not in Q. One is Q, which has sayings of Jesus um, that are not in Mark. And one is Thomas, which has, has sayings of Jesus that aren't in those three. And then they also have overlapping sayings. Um, and, yeah. Should I wait to the end? Can may I ask now? You may, yeah. I don't understand if these, this gospel was not written at the time it occurred, but years later, how do they attribute to the different people? 
I'm not sure one. that I'm tracking your question. How do they attribute to what? To the authors? The gospel. You say gospel according to you. Uh, oh, okay. So how did Matthew? the gospels get their names? These are just traditions that were <laughs> appended to the gospels at a later time. Um, and so the it gospel of Mark... Based that, on what if they don't know so that's what I'm answering. I'm answering there. your question. Oh, okay. So the gospel of Mark, there's a tradition that says it was written by John Mark who um, was a, a student of Peter. It's just a tradition. Um, tradition circulated around the text that associated it with the school of thought. So for example, Matthew's gospel, what scholars would say was, it wasn't written by the disciple Matthew, but it may have been written within the community that descended from his teaching lineage. So Matthew founded a Jesus community, and teaching circulated in that community, and as the generations unfolded, they collated that, assembled that, into the gospel that we call the gospel of Matthew. Um, but these are just traditional names associated with the texts. They don't actually give us any information about who historically wrote the texts. Thank you. I, yeah. I may be able to say something helpful in, in that regard. The idea of knowing who the author is and of making sure there's a copyright and it's attributed to the, <laughs> is a no, is a modern idea. In ancient times, it was considered a text was considered more authoritative based on what older person who doesn't ex you could attribute it to. So they weren't lying, right? That's the way it worked. So for instance, in the, in the Torah, the, 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 um, uh, the Song of Songs is attributed to King Solomon, who lived in a 900 BCE, right? But modern linguistic scholars can pretty much prove that that's not ancient Hebrew, that the Song of Songs is like third century. or So the Song of Songs is probably composed hundreds of years after King Solomon lived. But the tradition was a book gained its veracity and authenticity and gravitas if it could be attributed to an ancient author. They weren't, they, they weren't trying to fool anybody. This is how it worked. So, the, so precisely who wrote it was less important than giving it um, some ancient bona fides. Uh, but they weren't just playing games with that. That's how, that's how you did it. That's it's, how you did it. Personal authorship was not considered important. You weren't important. Not in the way we think of modern authors needing to be respected for their work. And it's often called pseudepigrapha is the word, a, a, word, a, a book attributed to someone. So it's pseudepigraphical, the author. Um, they didn't actually write it. Like we often will say, the Psalms of David. But oh, we know David example. didn't write all of yeah. the Psalms. There are yeah. lots of different authors, but we call them the Psalms of David. Um, Matthew may have not written the Gospel of Matthew, but we call it the Gospel of Matthew. Um, the same with the letters attributed to St. Paul in the New Testament. There are 13 attributed to him. Most scholars think he only wrote seven of them. But the others are all letters of Paul but they were probably written by students in Paul's school of thought, and they gave weight to those letters by writing them in his name. And they didn't see that as lying. They saw that as, you know, working in the tradition. Exactly. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you. Good, really good and important question. Um, so, so these early sources, um, sayings, gospels, um, Thomas, the core collection of sayings we think is from the mid-first century, um, the same with um, Q. Now Thomas may have developed, and the finalized form that we have is a Coptic translation of that text, which would have been originally written in Greek, and that Coptic translation 
was, was transcribed in the fourth century sometime. So it's a, a translation of a text that probably went through phases of redaction and editing. But we think that the core of it is mid-first century. Um, when we look at Thomas, um, importantly, early scholars, when it showed up, they said, well, is Thomas just a collection of um, someone's favorite sayings of Jesus from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Someone just sat down and pulled out their favorite sayings. Uh, and, and so that was a theory, and scholars said, well, it's a late document based on the four canonical Gospels. Contemporary scholarship that's examined it from a literary critical perspective says, no, actually this preserves versions of the sayings of Jesus that aren't being copied from the known Gospels of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, because often the sayings, they're written in just a different wording order, a different style that implies that these weren't actually copied. They're another remembering of that saying from the early headwaters in oral tradition. So over here, the oral tradition crystallized into Thomas. Over here, the oral tradition crystallized into Q. And we get variant versions of the same sayings. So when a saying shows up in both Q and Thomas, then we say it has um, multiple independent attestation. <laughs> that saying, it's attested here and here in two texts that aren't dependent on each other. So that gives us, uh, that says that there's a strong memory associating this saying with Jesus because it showed up in multiple sources across the tradition. Um, so what I want to look at today, often when we say gospel, we assume Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's what gosp the gospels are. Um, and if you ask a Christian, well, what's the gospel? They might say, well, it's that, you know, Jesus died for your sins, or that Jesus was born of a virgin, or this or that or the other. Well, I, what I want to ask is, well, is that what the gospel was for Jesus? No. Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels wasn't preaching Jesus. What did the gospel mean for Jesus? Um, so we can say there's the gospel of Jesus that he preached, and then the gospel about Jesus that the later followers preached, right? And, um, and so we get these little synopses. Um, in, in Mark's gospel, Mark summarizes what Jesus was up to like this. This is in the opening chapter. He says, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent or turn and believe the good news. So, so there's the word good news, gospel, and there's what was the gospel about? It was Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God. Um, so that's how Mark summarizes what the gospel was for Jesus. He was preaching a message of good news about the kingdom, the reign, the realm of God. And we're going to keep breaking that open. And let me give one, oh, one more synopsis for Matthew. So Matthew summarizes what Jesus was doing like this. This is in the ninth chapter of Matthew. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw crowds, he was moved with compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Remember, they were living under Roman occupation. Um, so both of these summarize what he was up to. He was moving through towns and villages, preaching a message in the synagogues um, about the kingdom. Uh, so that's what we're going to turn to now. We're going to look at, well, what was the kingdom? What did it mean for a Jew in the first century to be preaching the message of the kingdom of God? So, Thank you. So 
as a, a rabbi and a priest study the gospel. So I asked the question, so gospel is a Greek word. Right, the go so gospel, when we say the gospel, that's a Greek word, evangelion, which would mean literally good news. That, that Jesus had a proclamation, hey, good news, folks, good news. Um, um, I'm confused. Evangelion means good news. Right. Which is, which is, gospel is often translated as the good news. So gospel simply means the good news. But what's the gospel, what, what does that word gospel come from? Is that an English so, word? That's a, so gospel is an English word um, based on the Greek word. Evangelion. Greek, evangelion. So we need to look at some Somehow etymology from there. Greek to, okay, I got it. Okay. But it's based on a Hebrew verb, um, bisar, is that uh, right? Uh, bisarot. So, uh, well, I have it in Hebrew. You're right. You're right. No, no, no. It's, it's like levaser is to. Uh, so, 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 I was looking at the beginning of Mark. Uh, read that line again. So Mark says, um, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel um, of God, saying, "The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near." Uh, turn, change your mind, repent, it's often translated, and believe in the good news, which often we turn into really bad news. Yeah. This is really bad news. You're all going to go to hell. Yeah, you're all going to die. Right. But for Jesus, there was good news. So, Jesus was a Jew talking to a Jewish audience. quoting. Mark is quoting Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52, which is actually the Haftorah that we... Um, uh, used for Parshat Shoftim. It's part of the Jewish <coughs> cycle of readings as well. Ma navu al heharim How pleasing or how welcome on the mountain are the footsteps of the mivaser, the bringer of tidings. Announcing happiness. Mashmia, well, I won't translate it. Mashmia shalom. Announcing peace. Mivaser tov. Good news. Mashmia Yeshua, announcing salvation. The feet of Telling, one who brings the gospel. Mm -hmm. That's what gospel means. Announcing, Omar Litzion, telling Zion. Zion is us, right? Malach Elohayach, your God is king. Okay? Hark, your watchmen raise their voices, and as one they shout for joy. For every eye shall behold... <coughs> Uh, uh, the Lord's return to Zion. Um, okay, so that's a very famous folk dance from Ma, no, Ma Nahavu, a beautiful song. Um, but uh, it, so it, it's so alive, these lines are so alive in the Jewish tradition to this day. Right? And so if we're thinking about the most important pieces of Hebrew scripture that Jews in the beginning of the first century, knew about, it was about the footsteps of the messenger bringing good news. So that's the context of, say, Mark saying, that's what Jesus is bringing. Mivaser tov, evangelion, gospel, same thing. It's the good news. What's the good news? The kingdom, the kingdom of, God. of God. God's going to reign once more over us. Or... God is the, or do we say, is it going to be in the future? Or is it 
if we realize it right now. And we're going to talk about that. Because what does it mean, the kingdom of God? What is that? And, and so I, there was a question. Well, um, so I'm wondering how this differed from what other people might have been saying in the synagogues of the time. So that's, that's what we're going to look at. So the kingdom of God. So there are lots of different movements going on. And, and the Jewish people are facing Roman occupation in different ways. And how will, how will Israel be restored? How will God's kingdom be restored? Um, and so some responses are violent. There's a, a zealot movement that says we're going to violently overthrow Rome and bring in God's kingdom. Uh, some movements were apocalyptic. They said we just have to wait for God to act. God will break into history, will bring an end to this age and this world, and will create a new age of the kingdom of God. Um, some have focused on, we looked at last week, purity. We're going to bring God's kingdom by holding the, the strictest possible observance of the law. And the Essenes said, we can't even do that at the temple because it's corrupted now. So we're going to go out and we're going to live the kingdom into being out, you know, in a, in a separatist commune, essentially. So there are all these questions. Um, how do we do it? So Jesus is one, one answer. More. Jesus is one response to what the kingdom is. And we'll look at what it meant for him in this context. And one more. I, I, yeah, I want to amplify. So is the kingdom of God something that's going to happen in history? Is it going to happen through our efforts? Or is it going to happen because uh, the creator is going to break into history as so many times in the stories of the Bible it happens? Uh, is it uh, something that we can induce through political action or through religious observance, mm -hmm. which aren't very separate in the ancient mindset, <laughs> truly. Mm -hmm. Or, this is equally present at the time. Not at, or, is the kingdom of God something that requires a transformation of consciousness? Mm -hmm. Right? Is the kingdom of God something that we can realize right now if we become aware of God's presence in the world? Is it, therefore, an internal transformation of consciousness? I would say, based on my conversations with Matthew, that all of these ideas were, were percolating. Uh, and different groups, but, the, but, the, but what they all shared was this, was this absolutely pervasive concept that somehow it's, it, we, we want to uh, bring the kingdom of God into our midst. Carol? So where does the Messiah fit into that? So that's another question that we're... Could you I, hear her? Where does the where Messiah does the fit Where does the Messiah, where does Mashiach fit into this? And that, again, in 1,500 different ways. Again, there were all kinds of different understandings or expectations about what Messiah was, how Messiah would come. Um, so maybe we, maybe we can... Yeah. You want to hold on? Well, it's, it's something that... Let's, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> I, I, I'm tempted to hold off because um, we want to really get into these kingdom questions. And okay. the question of, so one question we can ask is, um, what was the messianic consciousness of Jesus? Did Jesus see himself as the Messiah who was coming to bring the kingdom? Did his followers, after his death, see in him for themselves the Messiah and frame him that way. Um, so, 
And if Jesus did have a, a messianic self-consciousness, right. what did that even mean? Yeah. Did it mean, yeah. that, what did he understand Messiah to even mean? Mm-hmm. So, um, again, the early Christians answer this question in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. And within the Gospels themselves, different answers are canonized. You know, one Gospel imagines it this way and another Gospel imagines it that way. So the early Christians didn't have one answer to this. Um, and for us to, we can't with any confidence say what Jesus' own answer was, but we can try to discern what that might have been by looking at the layers in the way the early Christians answered it. Um, and I think, I, I think in order that we're all operating in the same conceptual playground, I think it's important to talk about this a little. So, uh, uh, which is that, let's again define what Messiah means. Okay, so Messiah is the Greek and was the anglicization of the Hebrew word Mashiach. Mashiach means anointed. And when you read the Bible, when you read the Old Testament, the Torah, that is how a king or a high priest is invested with their uh, position. They are anointed with oil, so they are then. Mashiach. So okay. in this, this world so of the Bible, to understand. the world of the Bible, there isn't just one Messiah. There were many Messiahs. Each king who was anointed, so Solomon was a was Messiah. Mashiach. David was Mashiach. There's even Cyrus, the king of Persia, I think at one point, right. is called God's Mashiach, and he's not even Jewish. The reason, he, the reason the scripture. Oh yeah, you were going to say. No. Go the reason the script. The reason the Torah assigns which prophet is it? Which which. Do you know where Cyrus is um, on that? I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll, I think it's by one of the later prophets. Um, okay. Cyrus, Cyrus, the king of Persia, after the Jews have been exiled to Babylonia in 586 BCE, the Babylonian Empire then falls to the Persian Empire, and Cyrus is the new emperor of the region. Uh, gives permission after a hundred years of exile, for the Jews to return to Judea and rebuild Jerusalem. So he is referred to as an anoint, as a Mashiach, probably because he's fulfilling God's plan. Mm-hmm. Looks like maybe second Isaiah. Yeah, maybe it is. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so the idea here, I need though, to say a little more about Mas- please, Messiah. Yeah. So, Messiah, as it's come down through the filter of Christianity as the dominant vocabulary of our lives, right? That's what it is, right? We have to, we, Messiah means one thing, right? The, the Christ, which is the Greek of Messiah. Christ is Greek for anointed, okay? So Christ, Mashiach, Messiah, Mashiach, all the same Mashiach, words. Christ, Messiah, as non-proper nouns, means anointed one. So if you're reading the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, then Cyrus would have been called Christ, or David would have been called David's Christ. David's called Christ. As the Mashiach. high priest is Mashiach. called Christ. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew. So, in the co- popular understanding of the Judea in the time of Jesus... <coughs> An anointed one meant a king of the Jews 
who was going to restore our fortunes. Does that make sense? A king. Who would restore Israel, who would usher in the kingdom of God. Right. Which would be interpreted in many different ways depending on who is speaking. For those who want to throw off the yoke of Rome, the Mashiach would be a Jewish king who would lead the Jewish people to throw off the yoke of Rome. In and revolt. Re hmm? In revolt. In revolt and restore our fortunes. That would be a Messiah. And some people were waiting on that Messiah. <laughs> right. There was, they, were, they were waiting for that Messiah. Uh, there are others for whom, depending on their worldview, saw an end of uh, history with a cataclysm there where an anointed one would then sit on the throne of King David once again. Remember, the Jews hadn't had a... a King David's lineage was long di dissipated by this point. And uh, by, the, by this time, nobody even could trace their lineage to King David. When you read the Gospels, which one uh, identifies Jesus as a descendant of David? Uh, well, I guess both Matthew and Luke's lineage, genealogies, right. does that sound right? The genealogies, yeah. So, in Matthew and Luke, Jesus is identified as a descendant of King David. Why? That establishes him as a potential Messiah. Mashiach. Particularly, Matthew's gospel traces his lineage to David. Luke's gospel actually traces his lineage to Adam to show that he's connected with the whole of humanity, whereas one so... Mm -hmm. and, and they have different agendas. And we're, we're going to look at the different theological agendas of each gospel because each gospel is answering the question, these questions we're asking in different ways. So Luke is writing primarily for a Gentile audience. So he wants to say Jesus is for everyone, so he connects Jesus to Adam, the father of all humankind. Matthew is writing primarily for a Jewish audience, so he wants to trace Jesus to David to say, look, he has the credentials to be Messiah. So they're all mm -hmm. asking these questions, mm -hmm. but coming up with different answers. A Messiah is an anointed ruler. Who That's, does the anointing? Uh, in ancient Israel, the high priest would do the anointing. Or, in one case, Elijah, the, Elisha the prophet anoints King Jehu. So a prophet or a priest, someone with authority. But it can become, it becomes understood spiritually, that it can be a spiritual anointing. And then that's what the Christian community ends up doing. They spiritualize the concept of Mashiach. Because obviously Jesus did not restore the Davidic throne in the temple and sit on the, on the, the throne. And so in the Christian tradition, Mashiach becomes a, a spiritual category. Sorry, just a minute, everyone. So I see a few hands, and I knew this was important. We're doing definition of terms. In Christianity, <coughs> Messiah comes to mean a very, very specific thing. Do you follow what I'm saying? In the time of Jesus, that's not what Messiah meant. In the time of Jesus, Messiah meant an anointed leader, meaning having been given the authority, who would lead the Jewish people somehow to redemption. Redemption is called in that vocabulary the kingdom of God. Okay, is it a political redemption? Is it a spiritual redemption? Is it a is, is it a, an end of time redemption? That's that's the question. The <laughs> ferment 
of the first century as the Jewish people struggled to figure out how to throw off the yoke of Rome, so Messiah, or whether they should throw off the, the yoke of Rome. The idea, the concept of Messiah becomes a symbol of the longing of the Jewish people. The longing. So this, is, this figure, we're looking well for the fulfillment of our longing. And will, will it be a single person who comes? Or, as we see in, actually in the later Christian tradition, will, is the Messiah the collective Messiah? Do we embody the Messiah communally? Is it not just one person, but many people? Um, that's, the that's the trajectory Christianity ends up going in in the theology of St. Paul, who says that Jesus is the head of the body of Messiah, and we are all members of Messiah. So he, he Messiah sees being a, the body of Christ. Yes, yeah, so he sees a, a collective Messiah that Jesus is sort of the head of. Um, so again, we see this spiritualizing and collectivizing of the concept, but... But all of these are options on the table in the first century. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we can't know for certain what maybe Jesus meant. Right. Uh, what, but, there are, but it becomes an incredibly fertile exploration. Rather than taking it from the uh, accepted um, uh, idea of what Messiah is, as it's come down to us through Christian thought and doctrine, uh, we can look at it. It means some kind of redeemer, but what, is, how, what kind of redemption are we talking about? Are we talking about universal? Are we talking about personal? Are we talking about political? Are we talking? About, and in any case, just as you said, Mashiach, Messiah, Christ, in the, for, the, for the Jews of Judea and the Jewish world in the first century, represents their longing for, in the Jewish um, uh, historical imagination, the time of our glory. When was that? When King David sat on the throne. That was the golden age of the sovereignty of Israel. Right? That, and King David... So uh, we're waiting for a descendant of David... And if Jesus did that, he did it in a really weird way. <laughs> say it again. Say it. I said if Jesus did that, he did it in a very weird way. Because, you know, it's obviously if we assume that the Messiah is going to fulfill that expectation and longing, Jesus doesn't meet the bill, right? Right. That didn't happen. Um, so the tradition interprets the word in a different direction. Um, so Be even more explicit. Uh, he dies. He dies, right? Messiah, Mashiach can't die. Mashiach is supposed to live forever. What's the song, what does the psalm say? That, that he'll sit on the throne as long as the sun and moon endure. From generation to generation he will endure. Um, and so, um, so this all becomes spiritualized. And, and the tradition says he's enthroned on the cross. And they link him to the suffering servant in Isaiah. That, oh, this is a totally inverted Messiah who's enthroned on the cross and enthroned in the heavens and enthroned in our hearts, not on a literal earthly throne. And so the whole concept, the whole image gets interpreted in this spiritualizing, right. mystical sort of direction rather than the earthly political direction. And, and so, in the debates that ensue over the centuries between who was right which we're not interested in, in, in hammering on in this class, uh, uh, the, 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 the Jews look at it and say, no. 
uh, when were our fortunes restored? What is this talking about? Um, whereas, whereas Christianity, again, because of the it unfortunately perpetually debased nature of human society, um, also has to come up with new explanations for, well, if this was the Redeemer, then what the heck's going on? That's all much further down the road. Right. And, then, and, and that meaning, that's what the Gospels are doing. They're making meaning out of these events. What do these events mean? The one we're following gets killed? How do we theologize that as Jews in a way that makes sense? So, they're, 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 so the Gospels are the, the end result, the crystallization of some decades of meaning making around these events. Um, so you have been dying. Oh, and questions. also there's two questions okay. over here. So let's jump over here and then to Hattie. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I may suffer from a limited attention span, but I'm caught on the lost and lost on the lost returns of the Messiah, the kingdom. So I'd rather ask a Christian a question from a Christian perspective that's simple. Is Jesus seen as an authentically humble figure, or was he shucking and jiving? <laughs> was he shucking and jiving? Was he shucking and jiving? From a, a, perf a, a perfectly human point of view, was he authentically humble? Yeah. So this is, a, this is a great question because, you know, we would like to think that the Messiah would be like a humble figure, right? That, that is the Messiah, the ones who go around saying I'm Messiah are the ones who probably aren't Messiah, right? Um, and so, so this question, what was Jesus' own self-consciousness? Jesus in the Gospels, he often says things like, um, the greatest among you will be those who serve. You know, and the last will be first, and the humble, you know, he's always talking about this. Um, so, the question, was he proclaiming himself Messiah? That's again a question that we can only ask now thanks to higher biblical criticism, because it used to be the Gospels are eyewitness accounts, and the Gospels say he said he's Messiah, so that's what he said. We have to ask the question now, did he actually say that? Or is that the later theologizing projection of the later communities? Um, scholars go in different directions on this, but what we know is, we looked last week at John's Gospel. John's Gospel, the latest Gospel written around the year 100, is the one where Jesus is proclaiming pretty much just himself. He's no longer even talking about the kingdom of God in John's Gospel. It's all me. I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am this and that and the other. Um, all mainstream scholarship says the historical Jesus didn't talk in that way. That's, you know, that wasn't his language. That's the later theological reflection. So did the historical Jesus talk in any way about himself as Messiah? If we look at the synoptic witness, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, he never publicly proclaims himself Messiah, but we have in those texts, in Mark in particular, what scholars call the messianic secret. And I mentioned this last week, that there are a few scenes where someone figures him out, you know? Um, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Mashiach. And Jesus says, tell no one about this. So, and it says, and so they didn't say anything about this, but they remembered this after he had died and rose again. Then they remembered that he had said it. Um, so you get this idea that um, some scholars will say that the Messianic secret, the reason that's embedded in the text is that there weren't historical memories of Jesus calling himself the Messiah. But the Christians writing the gospel said, but he was the Messiah, so he must have known he was the Messiah, so he must have told people not to talk about it. Um, so there's a vein of scholarship today that would say Jesus 
his own self-awareness was not messianic, that he wasn't proclaiming himself the Messiah, but that his followers came to see in him the fulfillment of their longing. They said, he, he in some deep way has fulfilled our deepest spiritual longing, so for us, he is Mashiach. For us, he is anointed. Um, so that was their naming their experience. Their deepest longing is met in this rabbi who's now been crucified. So he becomes that, and then that becomes crystallized, and now everyone's, now he's got to be a Messiah for everyone. Um, and um, so, so I take the position that in all likelihood, the historical Jesus did not think of or call himself Messiah. Um, but that's the, the development in the tradition. Okay, uh, Hattie and Carol Sass and uh, Joan, you, do you all want to say? Yeah, something? Hattie, you've had your hand up for a long time. Well, what I was kind of talking about, what I was going to say, which is that I don't, though I'm not a student of the Bible, I don't remember Jesus ever claiming himself Messiah. They would say, he always put it back, he would say... You say that I am. Oh, you yeah. What do you think? Yeah. You say that I am. Yeah. He did, and when he performed miracles, he always said, don't tell anyone. He does. No, and he always deflects when they say, oh, Jesus, you've done this. He says, no, your faith has yeah. made you whole. Yeah. Your faith has healed you. So he always yeah. deflects back to the people yeah. rather than taking self-credit. But Jesus said something that's actually quite terrifying. Which is, he said, the kingdom of God is within you. So, that's so where we're going to head right now. It was the very frightening thing. that how, how hard he was saying, don't look at me. Don't look outside. Look within, and I'm going to show you how. And that was the thing. We never listened to Jesus. Because to <laughs> me, that's his message. I'm going to show you the way to yourself. And that was like, oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. I have to do the work. Yeah. We are always looking for something or someone else to do the work that we can benefit from. That's my kind of take on it. He wanted us to know our, ourselves. So, so well said. So this asks, gets to the question we want to turn to now. For Jesus, what was the kingdom of God? And he does say mysterious things like the kingdom of God is within you. And so... We see in Jesus the beginnings of the spiritualization of these concepts. So we have people longing for the political kingdom that will overthrow Rome. But he begins saying, what if this is an inner reality? And if that's the case, if the kingdom of God is an inner reality, that, that certainly has an impact on our outer reality. As we are transformed persons, we transform the social order. But we see Jesus begins at home. Transform yourself, transform the world not transform the world violently and you know transform yourself and out of that the world will change so we're going to look at some sayings from him in the gospels about what the kingdom is when the kingdom is and where the kingdom is and that also then changes what messiah is when messiah is and where messiah is um, so i want to let jonathan talk a little bit about this language that jesus doesn't pull this metaphor Right. Kingdom of God out of thin air. He's he's speaking as a Jew. So, Jonathan, what's the kingdom of God? Okay, so what's the kingdom of God? Uh, um, it's all over the liturgy. It's everywhere in our liturgy. In the most ancient strands of Jewish prayer, uh, uh, we talk constantly 
about the kingdom of God. So that, for example, uh, when, when uh, we recite the Shema Yisrael, okay, this is the oldest piece, uh, this one is from Deuteronomy chapter 4, I mean chapter 6, and uh, it says, Shema Yisrael, hear Israel, Adonai, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Okay? Or sometimes translated, perhaps the Lord alone. Um, and uh, then we are told to recite that when we rise up, when we lie down, so every morning and night. So twice a day, as old as Jewish practice is, Jews have been reciting this declaration of the oneness of God. And the rabbis add a line afterwards, which we say, Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Le'olam Va'et. Blessed is the glory of God's kingdom forever and ever. Okay, so that's there in the Shema. Now, um, our rabbinic tradition, again, going way back before Jesus. So I'm saying that because this is the context. Uh, understood and says that when you recite the Shema, you are taking upon yourself something called the Ol Malchut Shamayim, which gets translated as the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. So what's a yoke, Y-O-K-E? I mean, it's, a, um, it's the beast of burden wears it, right? It goes around their neck, it's tied with leather thongs, and if you're yoked, you are at the behest of your master, right? You do that work. So for the Jews, always, the yoke of the kingdom of heaven was the acceptance of the covenant and of the commandments. Uh, for because in the ancient time, the king was understood clearly to be the most powerful human on earth. In fact, someone who had been anointed as a godly figure, right? The, the divine right of kings means that the king was the law. What the king said had divine right. And uh, so for the, for the Jews, who from our outset looked skeptically on earthly kings, right? That's the story of the Exodus, right? That's our, our core story, that Pharaoh who says the Nile is mine, and I don't know, Moses comes and says to him, I spoke with I am that I am, and, and I am says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I do not know I am. And I will not let your people go to serve this God. Let my people go to serve me, says I am, in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, I do not know that I am. Mm -hmm. And I will not let you go to serve them in the wilderness. So serving an earthly king is being yoked to them. Mm -hmm. The Jewish people have always, from our most, our most sort of core story origins, understood that we are yoked to the king of kings which is the ancient metaphor for the spiritual realm, right? For the realm that transcends human uh, power gains. Uh, I can't state that strongly enough. This, so the kingdom of God is 
is not, it's not your ordinary kingdom, right? It's a, it's a metaphor. And uh, so if you say the Shema, that God is one, our tradition says you have taken upon yourself the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. Then when you recite the Ve'ahavta afterwards, the you shall love the God with all your heart and soul and might, you take upon yourself the yoke of the commandments. And these two work in tandem as what we Jews accept upon ourselves and affirm. And so, for, so the kingdom of heaven, as it were, is what we serve, not earthly rulers. Uh, when the Jews then in uh, the book of um, uh, uh, Samuel demand a king, they, we want to be like the other nations. And they demand a king, and Samuel, the prophet, says, do you know what a king's going to do to you? He's going he's gonna, to um, uh, conscript your sons. He's going to tax you to an inch of your life. He's going to take your girls into his harem. You want a king? And they say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they say, yeah. <laughs> um, so there's this tension throughout the Bible of this, uh, who, you ser- who do you serve, right? So then, uh, when we get to Aleinu, which is at the, so the oldest streams of Jewish tradition, uh, when we take out the Torah, we say, Adonai melech, Adonai malach, Adonai imloch le'olam vahed. God reigned, God reigns, God will reign forever and ever. We sing that every week. Um, uh, and then and, uh, when we get to the end of every service, there's a very ancient prayer called the Aleinu, which says, it is incumbent upon us to praise Adon HaKol, the master of all, and to ascribe greatness to the, um, uh, to, to the source of all. And then it says in that prayer, we bow and bend the knee, before the king who is the king of kings, the holy one. And then in the next paragraph it says, therefore we will hope for the day when the world is perfected in Malchut Shaddai, in the kingdom of the Almighty. On that day, God's name will, will be one and all will be one. Right? We say, it's like, it's, it's, these are it's all over the place. It's all over the place. It's so, it defines the liturgy. When we um, uh, 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 do the Kedusha, which is where we pray below as the angels are praying above, we say, May God reign forever and ever in every generation. Hallelujah. It's quoting Psalm 146. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, us modern Jews kind of like, you know, kings are passe these days, right? <laughs> We're a democracy. We need like uh, a different name for the... There's a translation of Jesus prayer in one of the prayer books of the Anglican community in the New Zealand um, prayer book. And they translate it as, rather than the kingdom of God, the commonwealth of God. The commonwealth of God. Very nice. Very nice. And, and this is something contemporary Christians have wrestled with, too. You see in a lot of contemporary translations, kingdom of God becomes 
reign of God or dream of God or I've seen translations that drop the G out so it just says kingdom of God. Um, Kingdom, very sweet. How do we take the hierarchy out of it? For the purposes of our class, which is very much historical as well as spiritual, if you have distaste for this this metaphor of kingdom, um, that's fine. It's fine. Well, you don't have to get over it because you don't have to use it. But if we want to understand Jesus in the context of first century Judaism, we have to understand that this was the, um, this was the, the, the metaphorical and prayer language of the Jewish people and still is. Uh, now, our prayer book uh, you know, has rewritten some of the prayers to reflect our sensibilities, but only some of them. It's, it's a... But that's another subject. <laughs> um, so, so there we are. The question is, when it says at the end of every prayer service, therefore we hope and await you so that the time will come when the world will be letaken olam, when the world will be perfected or into the kingdom of the Almighty. And we've been saying that for well over 2,000 years in our daily liturgy. Jesus was a Jew, and everyone he was talking to were Jews. So they all understood, they knew that line, that the world's going to be repaired somehow, uh, and we will all uh, be in together. But what was Jesus' program for the repairing? (laughs) So different people had different programs for that, that vision. And so, sure, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, so did everyone else. But what did he mean by it? So that's what that's we, the that, great question. That's, what did he mean? So what what I want to do? I want to hand Should out. I hand these out. Yeah, let's hand out. Let's send this one around. Um, so and 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 the word. Just so you know, in the New Testament, the word that shows up is basileia, which is Greek for kingdom. In Hebrew, it's malchut. And in Aramaic, it's Malkutha, with an A on the end. Um, But uh, interestingly, both of these are grammatically feminine words. I just find it fascinating that kingdom is actually a feminine word. Um, But... Okay, so we'll let those get handed around. Um, Take a minute. So... The other thing to remember, and Jonathan just brought this up, is the political dimension of the phrase. When, when someone was talking about the kingdom of God, that was a threat to the kingdom of Rome, right? And we have to understand a lot of the sayings that early Christians used had a political edge. So when Jesus, um, when, when Christians in the first century went around saying, Jesus is Lord, that was actually a politically subversive phrase. It meant Caesar is not Lord, right? They're saying, we are redefining lordship. They're saying, for us, this, this humble, suffering servant who died on a cross, this humble one who, who preached God's kingdom of, of equality and peace, that's what real lordship looks like. And Caesar is, is the lordship of Pharaoh. So today we hear Jesus as Lord as like, you know, a, a bludgeon or something. But we have to realize for these early Jesus followers, it was a political statement. They were saying Jesus is the Lord, Caesar is not. God's is the kingdom, Rome's is not. Um, so it's always important to hear that politically subversive edge in these statements. Um, so what you have here, you've got some different sayings um, about the kingdom. 
that come from Matthew and Luke, which means they come from Q, that Q source. Can you? Yeah. Q is just the capital letter Q. Oh, okay. So it's, it's the German word. So much of higher biblical criticism came out of German scholarship initially. So a lot of the words we use have a German origin. So the German word for source is quella. Source, quella. Um, and so it just gets in scholarly books shorthanded as Q. Um, so Quella, Q, is the source gospel Matthew and Luke were using in addition to Mark to create their gospel. Um, so we have sayings here that are drawn from that early sayings collection time of the tradition from Q and from Thomas. Um, and they're multiply attested. They're in Q and Thomas, which means they were probably you know, going back to Jesus. So... Let's see where I want to start. Let's go down to the very bottom of this page where it says, when is the kingdom? Do you see that? So the very bottom of the page. So this is a question that was being asked. Is the kingdom apocalyptic? Is it going to you know, be ushered in through a great act of God? Um, so I'll read it out loud. I was going to say someone else read it, but we want to get it on the audio clearly here. So I've got two versions of this saying. One comes from Luke, therefore from the Q source, and one comes from Thomas. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. And that Greek word can be translated equally accurately as among or within. So Hattie um, quoted this earlier. For in fact, the kingdom of God is within you, or, in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. It's here. Um, so, that's a radically different understanding. So, this is Jesus' understanding of the kingdom. He's saying, it's not apocalyptic. It's not later. They say, when will it come? He says, hey, it's here. You just don't see it. You're not living it. Um, so, one of our most beloved lines about the kingdom that Christians pray in our, in our daily liturgies and in our Eucharist every week um, what we call the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Father, Abba, Holy One, holy is your name, your kingdom, your Malkut, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, um, as above, so below. So may this earthly reality move into alignment with the spiritual heavenly reality so that this world is manifesting that world. Um, so again, what is kingdom here? Kingdom is when heaven manifests through earth. That's kingdom in Jesus' vision. Um, so he says it's not spatial. Look, here it is or there it is. It's not when we set David back up on a throne and have a temple, which is what a lot of the longing is, that it's going to have a spatial, temporal, geographic reality. That's the kingdom. He says, no, it's not here or there. It doesn't come by things that can be observed. It's among you and within you. Um, the Thomas version of that saying um, Thomas 1.13 we have here. It's the same saying. His disciples said to him, When is the kingdom going to come? Jesus said, It is not by being waited for that it is going to come. It doesn't come by waiting for it. Uh, and other translations render that it is not coming by looking on the outside. They are not going to say, Here it is or there it is. Rather, the kingdom of the Father is spread out over the earth and people do not see it. Um, 
what is this? What's going on here? What do you hear? Yeah? This is very familiar. We say, <clears throat> I don't know exactly where it's from, but these words which I command you, that they're not beyond the sea that you should say, who will go and get them for us? Right. So that's, that's on here. So go back up to where, where is the kingdom. Do you see that on the front page? So there's a, a line here um, from the Gospel of Thomas. Um, it's not multiply attested. It's only attested in the Thomas tradition. Um, but I'll read it out loud. Jesus said, now Jesus often in his teaching is critiquing leaders. Religious leaders, political leaders, he's critiquing authorities constantly, but particularly spiritual authorities. Jesus said, if those who lead you say to you, see the kingdom is in heaven, then the birds of heaven will get there before you. If they say to you, it is in the sea, then the fish will go before you. Rather, the kingdom is within you, and it is outside of you. When you know yourselves, then you will be known, and you will know that you are the children of the living one. The, the text actually says living father. This is a gender-inclusive translation of the living one. But if you do not know yourselves, then you are in poverty, and you are poverty. Um, so again... This is what, what Hattie was saying. You know? yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, but can't somebody just bring it to me? Right, right, right. right. And that's quoting... So Jesus is, is not just pulling this out of thin air. He is speaking as a Jew. Do you realize what he's quoting what he's done here? Deuteronomy. Chapter this is Torah. 30. Moses telling the people, Surely this instruction which I am giving you today is not too baffling for you, nor is it beyond reach. It is not in the heavens that you should say, Who among us can go up to the heavens and get it for us, and impart it to us that we may observe it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who among us can cross to the other side of the sea and get it for us, and impart it to us that we may observe it? No. The thing is very close to you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you can do it. So that's personal responsibility. Uh, <laughs> it's personal responsibility, but it's, and it's more than that. It's also a mystical reality. Yeah. Um, when you feel impoverished, Thomas is saying, mm -hmm. that is, I got it, that, that is a, a, the sense of, now we would call it scarcity. Mm -hmm that there's never enough. There's never going to be enough. I'm dried up. I'm withered. There's, and that's in a sense of impoverishment. But not just taking personal responsibility, but opening ourselves, as I said at the beginning, to the spiritual realm out of which this world emerges where there is an inexhaustible fount of love and life. And that's the good news. That's what Jesus is saying. This is what is, this is it good. It is good news, it's isn't good, it, everybody? It's good news. Like, it's here. The kingdom is here. It is within you. You don't have to wait for it. You don't have to travel to find it. Like, this is why it's called good news. So what does Moses then say? See, I set before you this day life and goodness, death and evil. For I command you this day to love Adonai your God, to walk in God's ways and to keep God's commandments that you may thrive and increase. <sighs> I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. I have put before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. Okay, so that's Deuteronomy. Uh, uh, yes? So 
this painting. It just got hung yesterday. Yeah, I think that's so beautiful from what you read, Jonathan, initially, how you opened this class about the spiritual realm being infused with the light of God. The spiritual realm. <laughs> right? So that, that, to me, is the light that is just penetrating physical reality. So this is way beyond Judaism and Christianity. Absolutely. The essence of, of existence, of divine existence. So I just want to point that painting out, that that's so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. These just got hung yesterday. It's our small works exhibit by all kinds of local artists, and it, and uh, the opening is on uh, Sunday. Sunday at noon. Yeah. Yeah. Right over here. So, so um, then we'll go over to this side. This is good news, right? But it's not that news. Uh, it's sort of good olds. Yeah. 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 <laughs> good olds. Good olds. Is this really yes. sort of a renewal? Yes. And the returning to of what was done after all this horrible stuff. Right, and that's, again, that's what contemporary scholarship would say is that Jesus sees himself as a renewal or a revitalization movement initiator within his tradition. I need to say something about that. So, what's new about this? Uh, there's a few hands, Ronnie, so I'm going to recognize some yeah, other sure, people first, sure. and then we'll get to you. What's new about this? Well, the English word revelation means to reveal which means that you're uncovering something <coughs> that's already there. The same is true in Hebrew. The word for, to, for God's revelation in Hebrew is, is legalot, to uncover. And in Greek, apocalypsos, which we translate as apocalypse. Apocalypsos literally means unveiling. Unveil, to uncover, to reveal, all of that. So therefore, this is the paradox of every spiritual revival movement. It's not telling us something new, news, it's not news in that sense. Uh, it's tidings, it's like announcement, uh, is a bit, might be a good translation. It's reminding us of what's already so. Mm -hmm. Which the, we, in our strange humanness, are continually inclined to forget. That's the words of the angels in one of the birth stories around Jesus. Good tidings of great joy. So tidings is another way of rendering news, yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a paradox, it's ironic, but it presumes and assumes the reality of the spiritual realm. Of the, of the, and that's where I began today, uh, that every spiritual revival movement is trying to remind us of something that's always here and always has been, but we do not avail ourselves of it. And it is the source of our life, right? That's that's what we're talking about with any spiritual revival movement. Of course it's a universal. I'm sure you understand that none of us are making any exclusive claims in here. We're, we're just talking about the, this particular uh, cultural stream and the way it gets expressed. Uh, yes, so Carol, and there were more hands over here. Carol, and then Avis, and then Shauna, and then Ronnie. <laughs> Which Carol? We have. Which we know. Behind you. Oh, this Carol. Oh, did you both? Did yeah. you both have your hands up? Yeah. Oh, both oh. Carols. <laughs> At the same time. Go. Thank you. When you said, I think you said from um, John. John is the one who says that Jesus takes on and says, I am. Right. Yeah. Jesus speaks in these divine proclamations, which is, we can say, the reality of the, the post-Easter Jesus right. for Christians. They now encounter Jesus 
as the spiritual reality, but it's not the way he spoke about himself historically. Well, I'm hearing something else throughout this conversation, and, and I have no idea if, if there's any trajectory from book to book. Mm -hmm. That would be interesting to me, but it seems to me that's where we all want to wind up. That is the final acceptance of what we're talking about, of having heard the good news, yes. having internalized I the am. good news. Yeah. I am. Right. Yes, and if, if those if we can hear those those divine mystical proclamations of Jesus in the Gospel of John, which we often hear as these very exclusive claims, like he says it and only he gets to say it. Um, it's in it's in that text that he says things like, "I and the Father are one. Um, I am the way, the truth, and the life." But what if, as Carol says, what if we're all supposed to come to the point where those words become our own? Um, and Jesus in John's Gospel intimates as much when he, he prays before he dies, may they all be one, he prays to the Father, to the Source, may they all be one as you and I are one. So the goal is that we all can utter those, those mystical okay. proclamations. Yeah, hearing. yeah, beautiful. Carol? So, <laughs> a couple of things. This, to me, harks back to the whole Garden of Eden thing where there was a falling out. Somehow we fell out of that consciousness. Mm-hmm. Garden of Eden, we fell out of that consciousness. And it also reminds me of some of the Thich Nhat Hanh teachings where he says, you never left the garden, you just closed your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just that twist of how, how you look at things, how you, how you see things, kind of. There's, so, there's a saying of the kingdom in, that's in Thomas um, where Jesus uses this language of returning back to the garden, back to paradise. Mm -hmm. And so it's another one where he sort of you know, looks down on this whole apocalyptic thing. They say, Jesus, um, tell us when the end will be, how the end will come. And he says, his response is, have you discovered the beginning? <laughs> have you discovered the beginning that you seek to know the end? First find the beginning and you will know the end. For where the beginning is, there the end will be. And so it's sort of coming full circle. That's beautiful. Um, and it's again returning back to that original unit of conscious in paradise um, that we've fallen out of, but that we come back to. Right. So it's very, th thank you, Carol. Garden of Eden. If we, uh, the most fruitful <laughs> path, the most, the most verdant, the most, the most uh, that I've been able to take with Bible study is to treat it as a document about our inner lives, our spiritual journey. The Garden of Eden is not a place. It didn't happen at some time in history. That's not what it is. It is, however, a story about us and how we somehow remember vaguely, somehow, not even vaguely isn't even the right word, somewhere in our beings, we understand that there is a time when we are one with the bounty and goodness and ever-flowing nature of creation, and that we fell away from it, we lost it, and we've had to work by the sweat of our brow since then and eke out our, feel like we have to eke out our existence. So um, it's a spirit, it's a story about our spiritual journeys. And so the same would be true then, for example, as a Jewish teacher, about what Sabbath is for. The Sabbath is created as the seventh day so that 
everyone can remember that unitive consciousness, right? That's called in Jewish tradition Shabbat consciousness, Sabbath consciousness. So um, it's just very, I just want to keep cranking us around to that this is, this, this is for me the, 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 most, the most growthful and useful way for me to study our sacred text, that there is a larger consciousness that we become separated from, disconnected from, alienated from, mm -hmm. and that it's just waiting there. It's always there. If and, we can figure out how to reconnect it. And, and his proclamation of the kingdom of God, that's what he's inviting us to do. Say he's it inviting again. us to reconnect with that which is always there. Um, so, uh, uh, Esther, you just going to have to wait because Joan is next and then... Avis and Shauna and uh, um, Ronnie. Come back next week. Yeah. Go ahead, Joan. Well, Joan, Joan, if it's not relevant anymore and we've moved on, let yeah. it go. But it if you want about, to share. It was about in Exodus the source of anointing and what oh. anointing is all about. Well, weren't we talking about that? Yeah, yeah. we were talking about the anointing of a king. But uh, this it, is this is the, the Lord talking uh, to to uh, Moses and telling them all about the, the origin of anointing and what it's all about. So rather than reading it, it's all in Exodus. Go home and read Exodus. <laughs> Exodus what? Well, there's also the it's anointing. Exodus 30, verse 23 and on. If you remember where Moses is anointed with the spirit of prophecy, and then it's too much for him to bear, so it's shared with 70 others, and then there are those two other guys who aren't there, and then they get it as well. And then Moses says, I would that all my people were would prophets. Would that all my people so, were prophets. So that's another anointing that's, again, a spiritual anointing rather than the literal oil on your head. Where is that? You know, that's based on that Exodus. Exodus, yeah. Well, that, that, that's, that's actually in numbers. But, oh, numbers. Uh, Ask um, the rabbi about the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> <laughs> it's everyone's. Oh, oh, that's so that he can be prepared to do the ceremony of making Aaron into the high priest. Oh. He anoints Aaron with the aromatic oils that are prepared. That is the symbolic act of Aaron being invested with the, the, the high priesthood. Yeah, and to me it's the first time that whole concept of anointing oil Shows up. Oh right, uh, Jones a um, is a um, essential oil person. She knows all about this. Yes, I think I think Joan. By the way, again, they weren't just taking some mazola, right? <laughs> these these folks were living in a world. They they were living in a world where they were paying attention to all the healing properties of herbs to all the transformational possibilities all around them. They were, these were indigenous people. They, were they knew their environment. I'm the one who's completely dense about this. But I, and I, for years, therefore, I didn't even assume. But the herbalists, the healers, the, these folks, their anointing oil was definitely something with potency. You understand what I'm saying? Not magic. I'm not talking about magic. But so Joan studies this stuff, so she's just drawn to it. She knows what a drop of lavender will do, or what it is. And so when you then, if you're from that perspective, and you read the combinations of herbs and spices that went into the anointing oils and the incense, we can assume, even though I don't know anything about it personally, that these were healing and uh, 
consciousness transforming Earth, right? And then you're not surprised when the three wise men come with certain right with certain holy anointing yeah. oils for the baby Jesus. Right. Well, and and interestingly, the anointing of Jesus, if he is understood by in the early Jesus movement as an anointed one, right? Um, the only physical anointing of Jesus happens at the hands of a woman um, on his way into Jerusalem. There's this woman who breaks open a jar of or set of costly ointment made of pure nard, and she anoints him uh, for what lies ahead. So he is Christed um, at the hands of a woman in the text, uh, which is lovely, rather than, you know, by the official priestly wow. cast or the. Which gospel is that in? It's in, it's in th at least three of the gospels. So that's a really subversive. Yeah. Yeah. Text and, Where, and no, Luke, seriously. Luke specifies that she was a sinful woman, and he's at the home of a of a, a teacher of the law when he's anointed. This woman breaks into their meal, and and she comes in and performs this act, and the the host is like horrified and says, "Don't you know what kind of woman she is? If you were a prophet, you wouldn't have let a woman like her touch you," and and of course, he sides with the woman. Um, so Jesus is always breaking sort of conventional social norms and part of so part of what his ministry is he's enacting the kingdom he's discovering the kingdom within but then he's enacting it through a social program mm -hmm. so what does it look like to live out of this awareness and what it does in Jesus ministry it breaks down social convention um, so his enactments of the kingdom are often at table fellowship and so he intentionally, subversively eats with unclean people. And this pisses off like the, you know, the, the uber religious. They say, what are you doing? So he's often seen at table eating a meal with tax collectors. He's often seen eating a meal with prostitutes. Um, you know, people that you're not supposed to associate with. So part of his proclamation of the kingdom is what scholars call open commensality or open table fellowship. He says, in the kingdom of God, we have an open table. Um, so Jesus is radical since we've been talking about anointing and, the, and, and, and we'll definitely be talking a lot more about the subject. And the fact that when the anointer is supposed to be a person of high authority, for Jesus to be anointed by... A sinful woman. A sinful woman, which is, you know he shouldn't even be having contact with, is profound commentary on where one's authority comes from. Comes from. Uh, does it come from the hierarchy, or does it come from a, a knowing spirit, from well no, knowing that reality? Well said. And again, of course, what's tricky for me, uh, one of the things that, that about doing this is that in our immediate reaction to that is Jesus is criticizing who? Jews! The Jews! But it's not Jesus isn't a Christian criticizing Jews. Jesus is a Jew criticizing, criticizing the Jews. Power tradition. Structure. Right. So if we can keep cranking ourselves around to that. You have to think of him like, think of Martin Luther and the Catholic Church. Right. Martin Luther is a Catholic, right? Yeah. And he says these indulgences and all these different things that are happening, all these corruptions, he's critiquing his own tradition from the inside. Um, the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, the same. He comes, he arises in the soil of Hinduism at a time where there's a rigid caste system, rigid gender boundaries, hierarchy, and he critiques that. Um, so Jesus is critiquing his tradition from within. He's not an outsider. And he isn't shunned by Judaism 
because of that, right? The Christian tradition doesn't start because those stubborn, hidebound Jews won't accept this critique. And this is so important. Well, and some will and some won't. Some will and some every, won't. Right. But this is very important. Where is Jesus drawing his critique from? From the prophets. From the prophets of the Bible. Right? So if you study the prophets, which Judaism has enshrined as holy books, the prophets are kicking our butt all the time. If you are, and as Isaiah said, you have eyes but you don't see, you have ears but you don't hear. It's all over the prophets. Jesus is firmly in the tradition of the Hebrew prophets. The reasons that Christianity and Judaism part ways are not because of Jesus' critique of Judaism. Jesus is well-founded in many prior critiques that are part of Jewish sacred texts. But again, the way history has treated it, the accidents of history, it's because we wouldn't hear Jesus' message that we Jews are failed, debased, um, wrong, wrong-headed, all of that. It's so hard to not fall right back into that because it's everywhere. Because suddenly you have now outsiders reading the texts as outsiders. So initially, those people reading the Gospels and writing these stories are Jews critiquing within their tradition. And, and you got the right to do that, right? I grew up Pentecostal. I have a right to critique oh. the Pentecostal church. But if someone else was putting it down, I might say, hey, hold on a minute, you know? Um, like, Jesus is doing this inside, but then the tradition, the traditions bifurcate, and suddenly now you have people on the outside reading the text, and now it sounds like those horrible Jews. That's how it's read, because you're reading it from the outside. Uh, oh wait, we were still over this way. But why the historical Jesus is so accessible to me is because I don't have to move ahead to right. the vilification of the Jews. And I can say, okay, what was this Jewish, amazing and, and uh, uh, daring Jewish teacher saying? And in the context of his lineage as a prophet, right? A, so- a prophet is a social critic and a, and a spiritual critic. Apis. Is it still relevant? Yeah, I, I don't know. Because it's so beyond what I would say. I know, I know. It, it, you're just moving so fast and yet so slowly because it, it, so much has happened and a long time in a short time. But um, let me get back. I, all I can think of is like Noah and Jonah and Moses and we've been given so many tries when we were talking right. about the inner <laughs> Did you hear what you We've been given so many tries. God has sent so many messengers in the Torah to us, right. yes. And that trying to so save you or to find that inner kingdom. And like I'm like, I'm scratching my head. I said, well, who's next? Uh. <laughs> you know, uh, this is going beyond where we are, and I don't mean to change it. Greta Thunberg and Malala Yousafzai, like they're all right. right. There's always been a little twist, and there's you're talking about the sea and the water, and you know, with Noah, and then and Jonah with the whale, and that he went to save people, and they had to look into themselves, and it worked for a while, and then what makes this humanity fall back into that habit of losing that spirituality? That is the question. That's Why the human we, condition. That is the question. Why do we keep 
losing our way. Shana? I find, uh, I find it fascinating to watch the dynamic tension in all of this between the concrete and the abstract. Mm -hmm. yeah. We talked about it, it seems like weeks ago, but it was maybe an hour ago. Yeah. <laughs> people who wanted a physical king versus a spiritual king, mm -hmm. which is a, a main piece of all of this, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it brings, uh, with a background in education, it brings to mind um, the teachings of, of uh, developmental psychologists like Piaget, <coughs> who teaches that children first learn the concrete world, and then as they develop critical thinking skills, they begin to understand the abstract world better. Um, That's right. And so I feel like this whole story, in a way, parallels uh, human development mm. and the ability of humans to think abstractly. Um, I, I often feel that in the current political climate, there's a failure of American education, maybe mm. uh, Western education, in, in the sense of people not being able to transcend from the concrete to the abstract, and we end up with extremely concrete thinkers in, in the driver's seat. But I want to connect back to what Joan was saying about anointment. Yes. Because that raises a, another question for me. Um, if originally anointment was something that a rabbi could achieve, and there were many anointed ones, how did Jesus morph from being an anointed rabbi? No, no, no. He wasn't anointed. Uh, rabbis weren't anointed. Uh, uh, um, He's a rabbi who came to be understood by a group of Jews to be the to be the an anointed one. But am I understanding you correctly that it wasn't just one person who was anointed? Historically, it was a succession. It was originally it was the king. So whoever was the king was the anointed one, and that so king died, and another one was anointed. Okay. And sometimes you had some people sneaking around and anointing this guy to be king while that guy was still king, and then they would have to fight it out. And you know, but it's the idea is that there's sort of one at a time, who so, is. Because my question was, how did Jesus? How how did we get from having? Succession of messiahs or anointed ones to be messiah. Right, and it's it's the evolution of a concept. Concepts evolve, right? So this was an idea that that meant a number of things over the course of Jewish history. Right. Um, and and that continued to mean new things um, in the time of Jesus. And so a certain theological understanding crystallizes within the Christian tradition that says. Well, he, he is the one that we were longing for. You know, this is how it crystallizes. Some Christians, who are at this point Jews, say, he is the one we've been longing for. And he's totally subverted all of our expectations and went and got himself killed. But he's the one. And then, then their logical sort of expansion is, then he's the one for all of us. If he's the one for me, then he's the one for all of us. And so if you don't see that, then you don't get it. And so it turns into, you know, which is... Well, just sad um, and unfortunate, but that's what we tend to do when we find something that's of ultimate value for ourselves. Often we think it should be of ultimate value for everyone else, right? I find my fulfillment in this, so you should too. <laughs> um, and so that's the heartbreaking thing that happens because out of this one that they've fallen in love with, um, and what human beings tend to do with our dualistic brain we sort of download ultimacy as exclusivity. Yeah. 
And so in Jesus, these people had an encounter with ultimacy. Something ultimate was in this life. He lit up their souls. Right, and that ultimacy then got rendered into exclusivity. Um, But if we can let that go, and and I often use um, the metaphor of, of the language of love, of romance, right? When you say that your beloved, the one you are in love with, is the most beautiful in the world, and no one is better than them, you know, etc. Um, that's true for you, but but you know, for someone else, theirs is the most beautiful in the whole world. And so, for those who fell in love with Jesus, he was the most beautiful in the whole world. Um, but then, unfortunately, ultimacy was rendered into exclusivity. And nobody else can be anointed after right right just like and we all like to play the one-upmanship game right all of our religious traditions um whether it's you know muhammad is the seal of the prophets and the last final prophet or jesus is the messiah and there's nothing after him or or once the canon of hebrew scripture was closed there can be no more prophets and no more additions to the book we all want to put the seal we've got the final word right we want to stop revelation Um. (laughs) Yeah, well said. It's been a long time, Ronnie, but you were next in line. This is all so elusive. Yes. It seems to... Can we repeat that? This is all elusive. You will not be able to pin it down, finally. It's a... I agree with you 100%. Okay. <laughs> Next. Well, then I don't have to ask anybody. Well, you're right. You're right. You're right. It's elusive, but that doesn't mean it doesn't. It's not important or real. Okay. Because yeah. life's questions of what it means to lead a meaningful life, they're elusive. And if you have a formula, and this is it, and it works for you or you or you, great. But if you then try to. Uh, um, 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 uh, generalize your right way to live for the whole world. For the whole world, then you're a um, uh, then you're a, a, a tyrant, <laughs> right? That's tyranny. Um, and so the answer is elusive, but the seeking is what makes life life meaningful. Okay. Yep. Go ahead. I think this is what I wanted to ask. Please. At this point, I don't remember. There's <laughs> been so much intervening. Okay, but you said, Matthew, I think, that uh, who was it who came and announced the kingdom? The good news is kingdom of God is here. Right, Jesus. That's Jesus. what he says. Yeah, okay. All the time. Okay, so if the kingdom of God is here, and if the kingdom of God is with, and the kingdom of God is supposed to be good, so if the kingdom of God is within us, I think we're going backwards by saying we have to search and find it. If it's in us, why doesn't it announce itself? <laughs> and make That's the human journey right there, yeah, right? Yeah, to yeah. arrive at the place where we started and know it for the first time. The, the, the Torah says. asks that question all the time, Ronnie. Yeah. God, God makes us in the God's image. So what's our problem? <laughs> so how do you explain all the, the cancer, the etc. Ah. If, if the kingdom of God is within us and the kingdom of God is a good thing, so we have it already. So why do we have the bad things as well? Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree. 
<laughs> well, well said. There well it is. said. The, our existence as human beings is a conundrum. We sense the exaltation of our being. We sense the glory of it all. And yet we're mired in so much uh, uh, suffering, uh, greed, and inflicting of pain. Why? So Why? how is the Why? kingdom of God within us? Is it, not the kingdom so of God Ronnie, the ultimate goodness? Uh, only if we, okay. Uh, so here's what a famous rabbi, uh, a Hasidic rabbi, the Kutzko Rebbe said in the mid-1800s. Uh, he said to his students, tell me, where can we find God? And they say, oh, Rabbi, that's easy. It says, holy, holy, holy. The whole world is filled with your glory. And that's, and, and the Rebbe says, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we only can find God where we let God in. So our, the difficulty is it's within us, but we are not paying attention to it. We're paying attention to our greed, our ego needs, our desire to control other people, our uh, ranking of ourselves constantly and judging others. So God, the kingdom of God is within us, but we are almost wired to be deflected from being aware of that. However, any of us in this room can identify a moment, at least one moment, when we recognized that, we were, that the kingdom of God was within us, that we were that we are not isolated beings, that we are connected to all that is, that we are, that, that a sense of glory and bliss and abundance and love is ours to just have inside us and manifest all. And in that moment, if you have a moment like that, you have, in this metaphorical universe, you have become aware of the kingdom of God that's within you. And then we get distracted and we forget. And so, um, a, you know, there's no steady state. Uh, we have to constantly be figuring out how to orient ourselves, whether it's by tending our garden or being part of a religious community or holding our grandchild or in a way that's going to maximize the chance that we will be able to dwell in that awareness. And then we will get distracted again because we're going to get sick, we're going to, have, we're going to be in pain, we're going to be distracted. So... The reason why people who pursue religious lives or spiritual lives are pursuing them is because there's no final arrival. It's a constant attempt to reconnect with that reality. And um, practice. It's That's called practice. practice. Yeah. And I like to think I get a little better at it as I get older. <laughs> oh, my. Um, it's two o'clock. Whoa. Okay. So um, that, that brings me back, and before you get up, that, that does bring me back to my initial comment uh, about Jesus is a spiritual teacher. The Torah is a spiritual teaching book. It's asking these questions and trying to direct us towards uh, being able to um, uh, bring them into ourselves, that kingdom of God. Let's see what we have to talk about next week, okay? Okay. All right, now before...